Baruch Hashem, we are continuing to study Basilegani Tavshin Mem Dalid. The Rebbe is Basilegani from the year um, 5744, corresponding to 1984. Not George Orwell's 1984, but 1984. Okay, um, just a little review. <clears throat> this is our fifth week that we're studying this, the Maimer. The discourse is composed of eight chapters. Baruch Hashem, last week we finished chapter seven, so we only have one chapter left to cover, and it's not a long chapter. Um, it's not going to take us that long to finish, and therefore we have a little bit of extra time, so I'll do a little bit of a review, a little bit. Um, if you need a thorough review, I recommend go back and rewatch the classes. But a <clears throat> little overview review. We started off which is the famous verse from Shir HaShirim, from Song of Songs. It is the it is Hashem speaking to his beloved bride, honey, I'm home, I'm back. How did that happen? When Meshur Rabbeinu led the Jewish people in putting up the Mishkan, the physical sanctuary in the wilderness, the Shechina, Hashem's presence, return to this world. Why do I say return? Because at the outset, the way the world was created, Iker Shechina betachtoinim hoisa. The main Shechina, we spoke about what, what that means, the main Shechina, are there levels of Shechina? Yes, there are different levels of Shechina. But the ultimate presence of Hashem was here on the physical earth. That got messed up, which we explained was actually part of the plan. It was like a mess up, but it was kind of embedded in the plan as well, uh, where through poor choices, poor use of free choice, uh, different transgressions repelled the Shechina until it ran away to the seventh heaven, uh, but then gradually, incrementally, it was brought back. Avraham brought it back a little bit one notch closer, and then Yitzchak another notch, until finally Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the seventh, brought it to back to the earth. And we explained the uncanny symbolism there about the seventh. And also I mentioned to you, and I'll mention it again, that that whole concept of kol shvi the seventh are precious, um, is from the previous Rebbe's Mimer. And I explained to you that the previous Rebbe wrote this Mimer to be released on Yud Shvat, which ended up being the day of his passing. So that's why we consider it something of a last will and testament, because the previous Rebbe wrote this Mimer, dated it to be released on Yud Shvat, and then that became uh, his day of passing. So that's sort of like his, his message his uh, final message. Um, so in the previous Rebbe's Mimer, he, he, he cites this medrash, this concept of all sevens are precious, and then that's really uncanny because that ends up becoming the day of his passing becomes ultimately a year later on the first yard side of his passing, the day that his son-in-law, the Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, takes on leadership of what would be the seventh generation of Chabad. So it's a little bit interesting. You have seven generations from Avraham till Meishrabeinu, and then you have seven generations from the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, until uh, his descendant, the Rebbe. And the Rebbe really embraced this idea, basically saying, look, being the seventh generation is not because you're so great. You don't earn that. It's just 
by quote-unquote accident of birth, meaning right place at the right time. You know, there's that great men theory of history. The great men make history, or does history make great men? And the Rebbe is basically sort of saying, history makes great men. Our generation, we're lower than our ancestors. They're greater than us. But we're here at this pivotal time where when we bring the Shekhinah down one more notch, it's that pivotal difference, that difference that makes all the difference between uh, you know, categorically, what's so different between the Shekhinah is in the fifth heaven and the fourth heaven, or the fourth and the third. You know, it's, that's, it's, it's a matter of degree. But to bring the Shekhinah from any heaven to the earth, that's night and day. And that's really our job, that's our mission. And then what the Rebbe does in this Mimer is starts to zero in on uh, one particular chapter from the previous Rebbe's Hemshech. I told you a Hemshech means a series or a serial of Maimodim. So it's not just one Maimer, it's a series of Maimodim, which is 20 chapters in total. And I explained to you that each year, for 20 years, the Rebbe would focus on another one of those 20 chapters. So this year, Tavshin Pei Dalid, in that 20-year cycle, corresponds to the 14th chapter of the 20 chapters, which corresponds to what the Rebbe taught in Tavshin Chof Dala, that's 1964, and in Tavshin Memdal, that's 1984. We're learning the Mimer from 1984. And does anyone remember what I told you the first week when we started this Mimer, why I'm teaching 1984 instead of 1964? Remember what I said? Why I chose this one instead of that one? I said it was shorter. That, that's what I, yeah. That's why you didn't remember, because it. It. it wasn't so eventful. Yeah, it was pretty eventful to me, though, because... I wanted to be able to finish by Yud Shvat, and this Shabbos is Yud Shvat. So, just so you understand what's going on here, this Shabbos is the anniversary of the passing of the sixth Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz, in Tovshin Yud, in 1950. One year later, on the anniversary of that day, the first Yurtzeit, is when his son-in-law and successor officially accepted leadership on that very same date. And how did he formally accept leadership? By saying the Maimar Basilagani. And then each subsequent year on that, on that date, he would say another Maimar Basilagani. And like I said, corresponding to a different chapter of the 20 chapters. Now, what is chapter 14 about? What's the theme that this Maimar is expanding on? It's a paradox. It's a paradox. Basically, in chapter 13 of the previous Rebbe's serial, he's speaking about how, how hidden the, the godly light is. And then he sort of transitions and says, and yet, it's accessible and it's knowable. So there's this, this fundamental paradox that's running through that part of the Mimer, which is, is God hidden or is God revealed? In other words, <laughs> depending on which context, you can make a strong argument that God really, really made it hard for us to believe in him. Or you could make an argument, no, God made it really easy for us to believe in. Come, come and look around at nothing creates itself. The very fact that the existence exists is a testimony to the fact that there must be a prime cause. So, which is it? Is it that the world, is it living in creation is itself an easy way of understanding that there must be a creator? Or is it the exact opposite? No, living in creation? 
Living in creation totally hides the fact that there's a creator. So you know that when there's a Jewish question that's formulated as, is it this or is it that, the answer is always both, of course. Okay. So it's the paradox. And then we start to get into the nitty-gritty mechanics of that paradox, and we say, well, there are different manners in which Hashem relates to the creation. And we learned some technical terms. If you remember, we learned or, chayis, koyach, <coughs> and then we learned shem. Very good. Okay. So or and chayis, we said or is light and chayis is life force. And those are similar to each other because they're both davik bim koyram. They are extensions of their source. Where there's light, there's luminary. Um, where there's life force, there's the source of life. Koyach is detached from its source, which is why you can transfer it from one thing to another thing and then not be able to trace back where it originally came from. Um, and then we got into this thing called Shem, which means name, and we said, well, Hashem also enlivens the world by speaking it into being. And this is a concept that's really explained at length in Shara Yichud Ve'amuna, which is the second volume of Tanya. How the oisius, the chof base oisius, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are distinct energies. They're like building blocks, elemental building blocks of all creation. And Hashem exchanges and rearranges, like Scrabble tiles is the way that I think of it, uh, to create the different formulae, which are the names of the different created beings, which literally describe their unique life force. We spoke about the Madrish, about Adamarishan naming the animals, that he didn't give the animals names, he recognized the names. So, you know, somebody could look at this and say, oh, this is water, and somebody else says, oh, no, it's Vasa, and someone could say, no, it's Agua, and someone could say, no, it's O. But imagine looking at it and being like, mm, mm, okay, you know what this is? It's an oxygen with two hydrogens Bonded. It looks like a little Mickey Mouse, you know, like a you know big circle with two little circles attached. You know, Mickey Mouse. Imagine somebody looks at this and instead of giving it a name, sees the molecular structure of the H two O. You know, about two uh, chemists walked into a bar, and uh, bartender says, "What do you have?" The first chemist says, "I'll H two O." The second one says, "I'll have H two O too." And he died. Yeah, it was poison, yeah. So, um, don't mix up your H2O and your H2O2. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the, the YouTube analytics will see if that joke is the point where there's a huge drop-off <laughs> in engagement. Or sometimes it'll be like a spike in engagement because people will replay it and be like, that joke wasn't as unfunny as I thought it was. Let me go see it again. No, it was as unfunny as I thought it was. That's called rage bait, kids. That's how we drive engagement. Okay. So at any rate, the names, the shemois, are also a way of describing the way Hashem enlivens the world. So it seems like <clears throat> in the Mimer, basically what we come up with, I know we talk about Oyer and Chayus and, 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 and Koyach and Shem, but it seems like the two main categories that are being contrasted over here is Ur and Shem. Because Ur, light, is revealed. What do we mean light is revealed? Like I told you, you could see a photograph, 
that was lit by candlelight, and even if the candle isn't in the shot, you can tell it's candlelight. You could see a photograph that was lit by sunlight, and even if you can't see the sun, you can tell that that's sunlight. The point is, wherever there's light, you can always trace it back in a straight line to its source, to the luminary. And if you can't, then there's no light. So there's a manner in which Hashem enlivens the world where the product is a direct result and testimony to its source. So if you see creation, that is an expression of creator. You look at the world, it's moving, it's alive. There's a life force here. Obviously that's coming from somewhere. That's what we call air. That's what we call light. But then at the very same time, there's a manner in which Hashem gives existence to creation, which we call Shem, which is hidden. Air is revealed. Shem is hidden. What does it mean it's hidden? You look at things and your reaction to their existence is more like not, oh, there must be, therefore, a, a higher source bringing it into being. No, 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 no. You look at things as they exist and your, your reaction is more like, well, this thing exists. It exists because it exists. And I'm saying specifically in the physical world, on the physical plane, because in the spiritual plane, or planes, on the spiritual planes, because there are many of them, the nature of spiritual entities are light-like. In other words, just like a light beam, you can always trace it to its source, a spiritual entity, like an angel or a soul, not only would an observer be able to see how it is a manifestation of its source, but the entity itself is conscious of the fact that it is merely an extension of its source. In contrast, in the physical world, the nature of physicality is that we feel detached from our source, and we feel like everything around us is detached from a source, and there's an illusion of ontological independence. Don't get scared of the fancy multisyllabic words. Ontological independence just means that something exists on its own. And the physical world really does appear that way. It's just like, you know, I don't see a line connecting this to any higher source. It's not like a shaft of light where if you trace it back up, you're going to see the light source. Where is this coming from? It's just, it's just here. It just exists. And the table and, and the tiles on the, on the ceiling and the carpet, it's just here. The nature of physical existence at least from one perspective, is that it seems to assert its existence as something autonomous. I exist just because I exist. Which ironically, and I mentioned this earlier, the Rebbe doesn't go into it in this year's Mimer, but in the first, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's first Basilagani, Tavshin Yodalev, the Rebbe does mention in the name of the Mitla Rebbe that what's unique about the physical plane is it's the only plane of reality where things appear to exist just because they exist. In the spiritual planes, nothing appears to exist just because it exists. It appears to exist because something's making it exist. That's in the spiritual planes. Only on the physical plane does something appear to exist just because it exists. And the fact that physical beings can appear to exist just because they exist is actually a reflection of God's essence. Because God exists just because he exists. In fact, 
God uniquely exists just because he exists. Nothing else exists just because it exists. Everything else exists because something is making it exist. God exists just because he exists, not because of any antecedent, not because he's required to exist, not because of anything forcing him to exist or coercing his existence or, or manifesting his existence. So in that way, the physical plane has a resemblance, at least in its appearance, to divinity that the spiritual realms do not possess, which is a double-edged sword. Because on one hand, the physical world really could convince you that there is no creator. There's just, it's just here. It's just here. It always was here. That's all there is. That's all there is. Don't, don't look for anything deeper. You can become a real materialist. On the other hand, there's something incredible about the physical plane that there's this godly essence that can really only be appreciated by being here in the physical world, which is the purpose of the embodiment of the neshama. Because for the soul to come down here is very painful. It's very constricting, confining, being in a physical body, having its sensory, having its spiritual sensitivity overloaded by you know, physical sensory overload. So it's, 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 it's traumatizing for the soul to come into a body. And yet it's worth it in part because the experience of godliness that can be had on the physical plane is much more a direct interface with the essence of God than anything that happens in the spiritual realms. Okay, so that's a basic rundown of how we got to where we are here on the last chapter. I see a lot of people want to clarify, so go ahead. What do you want to... I just want to know, so what do we do with that? Nothing yet. Nothing yet. Nothing yet. Like, what's the work? What's... Yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about it yet. I'm just reviewing. I'm just reviewing. I'm just getting your bearings. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you give an example of the world, the crazy world, and you could see it as a direct um, reflection or, or a being towards the aura or whatever. Right. And then at the same time, we're talking about the exact same thing, the physical world. And then it's Thank you for clarifying. Yes, we're talking about the exact same thing. We're talking about the fact that you can look at things in this physical world simultaneously from two perspectives, from an Oyer perspective and from a Shem perspective. Two different glasses, yeah. Two different vantage points. You want to know more specifically what that means? You want to give an example of Or, the world. You want to give an example of Shem, the world. <laughs> Correct, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's going to explain it a little more in the coming chapter, but basically I'll sum it up like this. One perspective is you look at things in the physical world. The fact that they're alive is itself a testimony to the fact that something's enlivening them. If they're moving, there's a mover. That's or. That it, that, that the lower thing points to the higher thing. At the very same time, you can look at the physical thing and say, I don't see where its existence comes from. It seems to just be here. And that's Shem. That's the hidden um, source. Now, the Rebbe doesn't elaborate on it in this mimer, but in other mimerim, the Rebbe does bring up the fact that it's a funny paradox. We mentioned that verse here because the the previous Rebbe's mimer mentions and you Hashem, enliven everything. And we said viata is Aleph through Tav, meaning the 22 letters, and the He 
is the five compartments of speech, which correspond to the five gvuras of Atik, which are the place that breaks up the divine breath into articulate speech. So you, the, the, the divine essence, which speaks the world into being, mechaya eskulam, you enliven, mechaya, Russian chayus, chayim, life. But also, we can read that same verse, va'ate mehave eskulam. Mahava means you give existence to everything. What's the difference between you enliven and you give existence? You enliven means the thing's already there, you're just making it move around. To give existence means it's not there, it's being generated something from nothing. So which is a bigger deal? I just want to make sure everyone's with me. To be Mechaya or to be Mahava, which is a bigger deal? Hmm? Yeshmei. Yeah, Yeshmei. Oh, you're using the fancy term. Very good. Okay. So to be Mechaya, there's something, there's already a Yesh there and you're just giving it life. To be Mahava, there's nothing there and you're giving it existence, something from nothing. And so to be Mahava is a bigger deal than to be Mechaya. And yet, paradoxically, where is it easier to see Hashem? The lower level. The fact that something has chayas, that it's moving around, is more of a direct indication that there's an, en an enlivener. The fact that something exists, maybe it just exists. <laughs> it's hard to tell how it came into being something from nothing. In fact, isn't that why they call it nothing? It's not really nothing, but it's nothing that we relate to when we say that... Th it's if Hmm? Because it's so abstract and unrelatable. So when we say the world comes into being something from nothing, you know, in Chassidus we talk about the yesh hanivra and the yesh ha'amiti. There's the relative something and there's the absolute something. So yesh hanivra is the relative something. Some things that we call somethings. You know what we call somethings? Physical things, because that's what we relate to. But that's really the relative something. The absolute something the Yeshua Miti, the true existence, is he who exists just because he exists with no antecedent, no cause for his existence, meaning Hashem alone. And that's something you just take at face value. Like, there's no way to understand Well, we can, we can give philosophical arguments, but like I'm saying, they're more abstract. So it's much easier to get somebody to be open to a God concept that's built on, that's predicated upon recognizing the life force in the universe than it is, in contrast, to get somebody to accept the fact that there's a God concept that's pointed to by the fact that things exist. And to the contrary, it may even be that the fact that things exist is a challenge for a lot of people that they have a hard time with a God concept precisely because I look at things existing and they just seem to exist. Where does it come from? It comes from nowhere. It just comes from itself. Now, logically, you can argue that that's impossible because nothing creates itself. God? Except God. And therefore, one definition, a philosophical definition of God would be that which does not create itself but exists without being created. And if you say anything else exists without being created, then you're saying that thing is God. Okay. So, let's do... Final chapter, chapter 8. Omnam cave and she'inyan Hashem hu bebechines halam. We just got through saying that this life force that's hidden called 
Shem, called the, the name of things. We remember we just, in the previous chapter, chapter 7, we compared it to like the, the treasure, hunting for treasure. And we said when the Jews left Mitzrayim, they were leaving with the sparks that were hidden in the physical things. And that's like the name of everything. It's like the hidden treasure that's in it. And you have to unearth it and access it and use it for the right purposes. So we're, we're, we're getting all excited about this, this treasure, uh, this discovering this buried treasure. Now that Ebba says, Omnum, however, meaning a little bit of a backtrack, remember this concept of Shem is the life force of God which is hidden. The greatness of Shem is revealed through Oyer. Now we just got done saying Shem and Oyer are almost like two antithetical categories. And yet, I, I, I always tell you, everything Chassidus is paradox. So not only are Shem and Ur not mutually exclusive, what we're saying here is, if you want to see Shem, it's through Ur. What does that mean? It means that we can use, instead of saying that Ur makes a case for, for itself, and leads us away from appreciating Shem, we can actually open ourselves up to a perspective where our, our understanding of Oyer is a step toward appreciating Shem. In other words, we were saying before, the fact that everything's moving around and it's enlivened, that's easier to accept. The fact that things exist something from nothing, that's harder to wrap our heads around. And so it's almost like the more we appreciate Hashem as he's enlivening the world in the way of Oyer, the less we can appreciate the way he's enlivening the world in the way of Shem. But now we're saying, actually, it's not mutually exclusive. It's not either or. It's a process. First, appreciate that which is easier to appreciate, more accessible, more relatable. It's definitely easier to appreciate the Oyer, the Chayas, the life force that's making things live, moving around, things are growing. Orbits are orbiting. But then you use that as a stepping stone to come to the harder concept, the more abstract concept, which is the Shem. The fact that there is energy in everything that makes it just exist. So that's what we mean, that the Shem is misgala al ha'ar that the concept of Hashem enlivening the world in a, name, in a way of name is accessed, at least the way we appreciate it subjectively, through first seeing how Hashem is relating to the world in a manner of light. Isn't that like the automation or movement is, is associated with the art? That's what we're saying, yes. Yeah. Umizem muven gamba negeela ha-chayos ve'lekishibinivroyim. Now we also from this understand that regarding the godly life force that is in the created beings. That since the life force that it, we would describe as the name of the thing is in a hidden state, it requires also the life force that we refer to as the light, which is in a revealed state, and that this 
reveals, the revelation of the light reveals the hidden energy that exists in a state of name. Va'oz yeshnam beis hamailais. And then we have the best of both worlds. We have both advantages, which is, he spells it out, shegam ha'etzim shebehashem, in parenthesis, shebehashem, that the etzim, etzim will translate as essence, in parenthesis the Rebbe says, which is in the name, ba begiloi comes into a revealed state. Okay, let's explain etzim and giluyim. Etzim is, like I said, we'll translate it as essence. Etzim means what something actually is. Its ultimate isness. Giluyim is the plural. We often use the plural revelations uh, because, you know, etzim is, is singular. What, what something is is only what it is. But the manner of manifestation and revelation, how it expresses itself, there's many different ways of expressing itself. Like, who am I? Well, there are seven kids to whom I'm a father. And there's a woman to whom I'm a husband. And then there's a bunch of people to whom I'm a teacher. And then there's people to whom I'm a neighbor. Or to some people, I'm just another car on the Belt Parkway that's uh, signaling too late and they're getting mad at me, right? I have a lot of different relationships with a lot of people. Those are giluyim. Those are the, way, those are the ways in which I'm expressing myself. Um, but then there's who I am. There's my essence. And in some ways, my essence comes out, or a part of my essence, an aspect of my essence, comes out in each one of those different giluyim. But it's a, it's a paradox, because etzim is very hard to bring out. Like, how do, I, how do I express my ultimate being? How do you do on a level of being? Like, being is you just be it, because it is you. Do we even know what it is? Do we even know what it is? It's, like, so unknowable. Like, in ISS, <coughs> the parts work like the self, and then all the other parts. Right, so there's the self, I'll use the terms, there's the self and the self-expression. The roles that we play, the relationships, the contexts in which we operate. So, you know, Hashem has his essence. He is who he is. I mean, ultimately, he's, the really, he's really the one of whom it can only uniquely be said, he just is because he is. And yet there's these various ways in which Hashem expresses himself. In fact, Really, everything that we know and see and experience is a different expression of Hashem. So what we're saying here is like this. Shem, the hidden life force, is Hashem's essence, which is, presence, which is present in the existence of everything. But Ur, which is the energy which gives things life, that's more of a, a glimmer. It's the sunlight, not the sun itself. It's the smell of the apple pie, not actually eating the apple pie and getting it into your stomach. You're going to go on a serious, like, physical, gosh, yes, run with it. 
I'm not sure exactly what you're meaning, but it could be you're saying, and if you are, you're on the right track, that this, these deep spiritual ideas are actually starting to get you to appreciate the power of the physical plane. Yeah. Yes, okay. So then, then you're in the right place. And I know before we started rolling, you claimed to not understand a word that we've been studying. But, <clears throat> okay, so let me explain something. Bossi Ligani means Hashem lovingly says, I've returned to my real home, the place where I really want to be. And that's based on the Medrash that Nisava did Hashem had a taiva, an irrational desire or a supra-rational desire to be at home in the physical world. Okay. And that's the theme of Basilegani and of every year Basilegani, some aspect of this idea that ultimately Hashem wants to be here. When we speak about Mashiach, what are we talking about? World peace is a symptom of Mashiach. What we really mean when we say Mashiach is we mean that God himself, the essence of God, he, he who is whoever he is, finds the physical world as the greatest, most conducive forum within which to be that. He finds the physical world, or we find Oh, oh, so it's a partnership. Because he originally just decided, I'm going to be at home in the physical world. That's when, the way he set it up in the beginning, that the main Shechina was here. But he didn't want it. That's why I said, the fact that the Shechina got booted out, it was sort of part of the plan to begin with, because ultimately Hashem didn't just want that he should be present in the lower realms. He wanted to be present in the lower realms through the work of the beings of the lower realms. So bring it back. Let's bring it back here, okay, to what we're talking about in, in this chapter. That Ur leads us to Shem. And that the Shem, the hidden godliness, becomes accessible and appreciated through the more revealed godliness. So we, and in the end, the Rebbe says, we end up having the both milas the Rebbe calls it va'oz yeshnom beis hamilas. Then there are both advantages. What does it mean? There are both advantages. It could mean, meaning, what might you think? Oh shucks! When Shem Etzem comes into Giloyim, then it loses the advantage of being the essence. And it takes on this manifestation form, but that's the price you pay in order to be able to have it in a in a form that's more accessible. The Rebbe is saying, no, it's the best of both worlds. You get to have your cake and eat it too. That through Hashem being appreciated in the ways in which He is evidently present in the world, we actually come to access the deeper manner in which Hashem is inherently hidden in the world. Inherently hidden because there's nothing he's doing, he's just being. That's what we call essence. And you're touching upon a very good point. When it comes to the doing, it's very, very different because each entity has another doing. But the essence is ultimate oneness. 
So you're pointing to another paradox, which is actually the same paradox. It's just a different, different language. We could say that etzim comes into giluyim and remains etzim. Or we could phrase that same paradox as oneness comes into multiplicity and remains oneness. That's God. And that is God. That is Geula. That is correct. Redemption means Geula plus Aleph. Like the Rebbe said, that Geula means exile. But you put the Aleph. Aleph is Alufa Shaloylam, the master of the world. Aleph is also one, meaning one is Hashem, one is Hashem. And you add the oneness into Geula, into exile. And now you have Geula. So what is redemption? Redemption isn't that we erase the complexity and the multiplicity of the physical plane. You know, like Lahavdil, like certain mystical traditions where their ultimate state is where you escape the, the multiplicity of this phenomenological plane and you go into absolute oneness and you just dissolve into the oneness and you lose your consciousness and uh, things cease to be, to be uh, independent entities. What we're saying is the exact opposite. No, no, no. In the plane where things appear diverse and varied and separate from each other, that is where the ultimate oneness or the ultimate essence can ultimately be experienced. Which is a complete paradox. Okay. Now, one more paragraph here. The al through this, Poyalim Shem Shalem. We bring about that the name should be complete. So we've been speaking about this concept of Shem, is the way in which Hashem enlivens the world in a hidden way. He gives it its existence in a way that can't be traced back to Him, so easily at least. Like for example, a table? The table is here. Right, exactly. Okay. So is this godliness? Yeah. Right, but if I take an atheist in off the street and I say, Aha! Look at the table! Godliness! Mm-hmm. I'm not winning any arguments. Okay. But somebody who has meditated long enough on chayus, on oyer, will look at the table and be like, godliness. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the fact that an or created it, created like it, like the carpenter is Hashem's manifestation. Just of its very isness is a testimony to the fact that existence. Mm-hmm. That there is an ultimate existence, an absolute existence, which is a real paradox, that relative existence ultimately leads you to the conclusion that there must be absolute existence. So this was made by a person, but it was made of materials that were... Right. Well, there's yashma yash and yashma ayin. Of course, the table was made out of raw materials, but the raw materials come from somewhere. Right. But nobody can make something from nothing. But that's that's different than what we're saying here. That's not saying, oh, we can trace this back to. Correct, correct. When we when when the when we want to talk about the more accessible godliness, what we call ur, I'll take you to the forest. And uh, I'll show you the tree, and we'll come back a year later, and we'll see that the tree is taller. You'll see. You'll see that there's a life force. But when you want to see the etzim, or the shem, you go to the forest and you say, see the tree? The fact that it exists. 
instead of not existing. The fact that it's here instead of not here is itself a testimony to the fact that there is absolute existence. Forget about the fact it was a seed and it was planted. Yeah, forget about all that. Yeah, just the fact that it exists this second in its state right now the way it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So through this, now you're saying, what do we do with this? I'm going to tell you what we do with this. I'm going to tell you what we do with this. Through this little paradigm shift that you just had a few minutes ago, we're like, wow, I realize the power of this physical world, the importance, the uniqueness of this physical world. When you have that shift, I want to tell you the ramifications of that. Through this, he says, Hashem Shalem, the name becomes complete. What does that mean, the name becomes complete? Hashem's name is referred to in Golos, in exile, as being incomplete. This is a Gemara in Pesachim. It's not even a Kabbalistic concept. I mean, it is a Kabbalistic concept, but it appears in, in Talmud. <clears throat> that, what does it mean? I think it's in the Navi Zechariah, when he says, Hashem echod and uh, in that day, when Mashiach comes, Hashem will be one, His name will be one. And they ask, what, is not one already? So they say, well, no, because right now Hashem is hidden because we know His name is an ineffable name, yud Vovke, but it's ineffable, which means we don't say it. We can't say it. Even though I know there are people who attempt to pronounce it, they think they're pronouncing it right. or not. Instead, we say His name as if it were written Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. But when Hashem is revealed in the world, we'll be able to know and say His real name. So the name will be complete. And then also what will happen? V'hakisei shalem, the throne will be complete. What is that? Hashem shalem, v'hakisei shalem, His name will be complete. The throne will be complete. This is actually a reference to the Parsha. Um, Yudshvat comes out, well, the original Yudshvat, the Rebbe Reyatz's day of his histalkus, of his passing, was Shabbos Parshish Bay. But, um, and this, this year as well, it's on Shabbos Parshish Bay. But this mimer is from Bishalach, which is the next week after Bay, Bishalach. So at the end of Bishalach is the Milchemes Amalek, the war against Amalek, the, the nemesis of the Jewish people. So at the end of uh, that story it says that when we ultimately vanquish Amalek and not before then, the Shem, Hashem's name, will be Shalem and the Kisei, the throne of Hashem, will be Shalem. The way that Hashem's name is written in the verses that describes the war against Amalek is Yud and He, just the two letters, Yud and He. Case Yud K, which is, Case is short for Kisei, the throne, but it's written truncated. Yud K is also Hashem's name written truncated. So what do we see from this? That until we vanquish our nemesis, Amalek, which is Begamatria Safik, which means doubt, you look around the world and you're like, is there a creator? Mm, I don't know. Right? So that's Amalek. When we overcome that and we look at the world and we say, this is not only oil, but this is Shem, this is the essence, then what happens? 
Hashem's name will be complete and his throne will be complete. In other words, what are we saying here? This is a powerful concept. That through our awakening, we're doing something for God. I mean, we knew that already from the very beginning when we said we're bringing the Shekhinah back here where, where it wants to be. So that we knew we were doing something for God already. We knew we were setting up a home for our beloved husband to move into and to be comfortable in and to feel good in and to be able to spread out in. We knew that already, but this is saying it in different words, that through my paradigm shift where I start to recognize God's essence, not just the Ur, but the Shem, not just Giluyim, but the Etzim, that brings about a fullness, so to speak, in God. They're going to say, how can you call God incomplete? The Gemara is, is describing it, that in Gullus, so to speak, after a fashion, however, whatever words you want to use to put it in scare quotes, it is as if Hashem is incomplete, meaning for all practical purposes. When the world will be in its redeemed state, Hashem will be complete. In other words, there will no longer be a division between creator and creation. You will, everyone, everyone will look at creation and see creator. But without having to erase creation, without having to escape creation, because that's easy to just say, well, we'll get rid of creation and then God's oneness will be revealed. No, no, he had that before he created. Then what's the point? That's a zero-sum game. That within creation itself, we will see the ultimate existence. Well, we uh, we yeah, it's, it's based on Hashem, and yet the ball's in our court. Well, we also have to do it. But it's not really, it depends on how much he makes it. No. If he no, decides to reveal more, then what's the But, but here, here's the point. He, <laughs> he's putting it in our hands how revealed he's going to be. Right. Well, the more we... He's leaving it up to us. In other words, we're sitting here, we're learning this mimer, trying to understand it, and something's happening. Something is actually happening. No, we're having a refining effect on the universe. This is part of a process that ultimately will be objectively revealed for every single, not just human being, Jewish and non-Jewish, but even the animal kingdom. The wolf will lie with the lamb because God consciousness will prevail. And everything, even inanimate objects, a stone will cry out from the wall. Everything in the world will become God conscious. Yes, by us sitting in this room... Yes, 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 so that is right. So we really need to live in physicality. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot leave here and then just go meditate. We no. Really need no, you need to, to meditate to come back. We need to be on the avenue. Like, yeah. We need yeah. to do both. Yeah. You know? Okay, let's, 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 yeah. Like, 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 the passage that you say before, like, like, liyachet shema kuchavrit, like, a similar concept, yes. This is all about the, the, the unification of these paradoxical seeming opposites, yes. Okay, let's, let's finish up here. Okay. So, then there will be the fullness, the completeness. Watch this. Together with completeness of the people. What does shleimus ha'am mean? Well, very simple. It means that the entire Jewish people are united that we don't have any brothers or sisters who are not invited to the family reunion or are invited, but they don't know they got an invitation. So, Shlema Soam. 
Shlemus HaToyro, the complete Toyro. What is Shlemus HaToyro, the complete Toyro? I just want to mention, I'll put in a pitch here, something that I started doing this year, which is not easy, daily Sefer mitzvahs. The Rebbe wanted that everyone should learn Rambam every day. The ultimate study track is three chapters a day of Mishnah Toyro, but if you can't do that, then one chapter of Mishnah Toyro. If you can't do that, then Sefer mitzvahs, as it corresponds to the subject matter in the three chapters a day of Mishnah Toyro. And I've been putting out a class every single day of the Ramam Sefer Mitzvahs. Well, I, I don't always record it at 3 a.m., but sometimes uh, I pre-program it to go live at 3 a.m. So, yes, you've noticed that it sometimes goes live at 3 a.m. But what's the idea of Ramam? The idea of Ramam is this. If you want to learn about all of Torah, every subject of Torah, meaning even things that haven't been applicable since the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and will not be applicable again until Mashiach comes. The only source is the Rambam. The Rambam deals with the entire gamut. Everything. Everything, everything, everything. You, you learn Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't deal with those laws. It doesn't deal with Karbones. It doesn't deal with Tumah Vitara. So, and, and, and the Rambam even has Halachas of Mashiach. So, the Rebbe stressed that Shlemus HaToyrah is through learning Rambam. You know, a lot of people push Daf Yaimi, which is good for those who can do it. But in a certain way, it's a little bit uh, exclusionary because not everybody can do it. It's a big deal, those who do it. But learning Rambam every day, everyone can learn Rambam every day. Everybody, it's except my little kids. I'm not trying to shame anybody here, be like a tough gym coach, but my kids learn Sefer Mitzvahs every day. And in the course of a year, a little bit less than a year, they learn all 613 mitzvahs. And that's called Shlemus HaToyra. But the fact is, everybody can do it. So you have Shlemus HaAm together with Shlemus HaToyra. And then we have one more Shlemus. This Shlemus edits Yisrael. And the completion of the land. What is Shlemus edits Yisrael? Let's say it clearly, unequivocally. The Lubavitcher Rebbe insisted and never ever wavered from this no matter what arguments were brought to him, that we do not give away one inch of land in the Holy Land. And the arguments, how is it our land? Is it, is it based on inheritance? Is it based on a biblical promise? Is it a security issue? That's a side point. What's germane is the bottom line. Shlemus Ha'aretz means that land that Jewish people are living in in the borders of Eretz Yisrael, we do not give away one inch of it. In fact, the Rebbe said, you don't even discuss it. You don't even allow it to be on the negotiating table. And the Rebbe said many times that even allowing a discussion of land for peace will cause a loss of life on both sides. The Rebbe always stressed, on both sides. Like, we don't want non-Jews to suffer either. What you think? We're just trying... Obviously... Self-defense is a priority. You take care of yourself. But we're not, we're not taking care of ourselves to the point where we don't care what happens to other people. Of course we care what happens to other people and to other nations. And the Rebbe said that if you really, really want to preserve loss of life and you want to stop bloodshed, then just make it final. There's no land for peace. We're done. It's never being discussed. It's impossible and that will preserve life. That will save lives on both sides. Jewish lives and non-Jewish lives. Okay, so we have Shlemus Ho'am. 
Shlemus HaToyra. Shlemus HaOritz. Okay. Shinikras Beshem Eretz. And why is Eretz Yisrael called Eretz? Because she runs to do the will of her maker. It's a medrash that actually describes when Hashem created the dry land and called it Oritz. And the medrash says, why did Hashem call the dry land Oritz? Why did, he call it, why did he call it that name? Well, we know because that's the formula that makes it up. Okay, but there's a meaning as well. It runs to do the will of its creator. The land, watch what the Rebbe is going to explain. It's, a, it's, a, it's another paradox. This word ratzasa doesn't just mean ratzin. It also means ratzin. Ratzin means will. It wants to do the will of its creator. But also means running. Ratzin, ritza, will, running. It runs to do the will. Watch the paradox. Land, the physical land, is an embodiment of the spiritual concept of Malchus. Malchus is the lowest, the tenth of the spheres. It's the sphere, it's the divine emanation, which is the interface between creator and creation. It's the bridge between infinite and finite. It's called feminine because it comes down to nurture that which is lower than it. So Malchus, Shehiba Bechinus Halem Vehester, Malchus is often associated with Helam Vehester, with concealment, with things that are hidden. Um, those who learned Tanya with me remember in the last chapters of Tanya, 51, 52, 53, it speaks about that idea of Malchus being synonymous with Shechina as well. On one hand, the earth is a concept of concealment. A very simple illustration of that is because you don't see any life force in the earth. It's inanimate. And yet, like Shlomo Melech said, hakoel min ha'afer, everything is from the earth. In other words, the entire food chain, all life on this planet, comes from the earth. Vegetation grows from the earth, and something eats the vegetation, something eats that, and something eats that. The entire food chain, or food web, however they call it now, comes from the earth. And yet the earth itself is inanimate. That's malchus. Malchus appears to be lifeless, and yet it's the source of all life. And that's why Malchus is Kabbalah's oil. Kabbalah's oil literally means accepting the yoke of the kingship of heaven, submission to authority. So on one hand, we need to be soldiers who submit to authority. Mekomokim, nevertheless, watch the paradox. It's simultaneously in a manner of running to do the will of your Creator. So hold on a second. Are we running with passion and creativity and excitement and innovation? Or are we soldiers who don't think too much, don't complicate stuff, just do what you're told to do and march? Which are we? Yes. That's the paradox of the physical world and embodiment, as well as especially the seventh generation, the generation where we're finishing the job. The paradox that the Rebbe is saying, basically, our generation is a combination of exuberance. We're running. 
and at the same time, Kabbalah soil. Like, run, knock yourself out. In fact, we didn't speak about it so much in this mimer, but there's a running theme in the Basilagani Maimotum of Shdus, the Kedusha, madness of the holy realm, meaning we're already a little crazy in the unholy realm. The world brainwashes us to be so. So we got to counteract that with, with madness of the holy realm, to be crazy in a good way. So on one hand, channel your craziness and, 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 and be a mover and a shaker, and at the exact same time, you're a soldier. You're following orders. And this is the paradox, and basically see what the Rebbe built in the world is this weird combination of innovation and entrepreneurial spirit, but with this total submission to we're here to follow the marching orders. Massive paradox. Okay. Through this, we will merit to run to greet Mashiach. Benareinu with our youth, b'zikneinu with our elders, goimer, b'vaneinu with our sons, b'vaneinu with our daughters, b'mhedo v'yameinu mamish, literally soon in our day. Okay, that's the mimer.